Welcome to the Yale History Podcast, an interview series with historians from the Department of History at Yale University. I'm Kevin Gloodhill. And up till now, all of our interviews on the podcast have featured faculty members of Yale's Department of History. But in fact, we see high-level research being produced at Yale at the graduate and undergraduate levels as well. And with the end of the academic year, the submission of theses from students, I thought it would be best to highlight some of the excellent work that our students have been doing at Yale. With that in mind, my guest today will be Alexandra McCraven, a recent graduate of Yale College from Cheshire, Connecticut. During her time on campus, she majored in history, played on the varsity soccer team, served as a senior editor of the Yale Historical Review, and was a member of the leadership board for Yale Bulldogs for Change. This summer, Alexandra will be working as an analyst at the Urban Investment Group, an investment platform within Goldman Sachs that focuses on community and economic development. Today, we're going to be talking about her senior thesis. And Alex has produced a really fascinating comparative work entitled Liberty and Literacy, a comparative study of slave literacy in the Greco-Roman world and the United States. In doing this research, she's engaged with a wide body of sources from the United States, including pro-slavery apologia written by the planter elite, the works of Black intellectuals and Black abolitionists in response to these pieces, and questioned how they engage with the traditions regarding literacy, regarding education, and the institutions of slavery in the ancient Mediterranean world. In many of these works, we see explicit references to the classical past. And in this thesis, Alexandra has done a really important comparative work of examining what the institution of slavery was in the ancient Mediterranean world and how it compared particularly around the question of literacy and education to highlight the differences between the slave systems of the early United States and of Greco-Roman antiquity. So with that in mind, I'd like to jump right into the interview and to welcome my guest, Alexandra McCraven. Alex McRaven, thank you for being here and, and welcome to the Yale History Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be on. So we're going to be talking today about your BA thesis, Liberty and Literacy, a comparative study of slave literacy in the Greco-Roman world in the United States. And I thought this was a really, really excellent and, and fascinating study that addresses numerous questions of the slave systems of the ancient Mediterranean in comparison to the United States from the 17th to 19th centuries. And in focusing on the issue of literacy, you also get at a lot of questions about the ways in which slaveholders attempted to justify slavery, resistance and opposition to these systems, attitudes towards manumission, setting people free, and, and other important points about, about all of the societies in question. So with that in mind, I wanted to start by asking about the laws themselves that, that you begin the study with in the early United States laws regarding the teaching of literacy to enslaved people. And first of all, what was the content of these laws and, and what was their intent? Yeah, so laws against teaching enslaved people to read and write in the United States can be traced back largely to the early 18th century. So these laws most commonly found in the legislative archives of southern states legally barred the instruction of enslaved people, or at times even all non-white people, in literacy. So for example, in 1831, the North Carolina General Assembly passed an act to prevent all people from teaching slaves to read and write, because according to the drafters of this legislation, the teaching of slaves to read and write had a tendency to excite dissatisfaction in the minds of enslaved people and produce insurrection and rebellion. 
So these kind of anti-literacy laws were also implemented in other states, such as South Carolina, Georgia, and Virginia, and kind of other bordering states. One act I thought was kind of really interesting is in 1849, they passed an act in Virginia that declared that any gathering of Black people for the purpose of instruction was deemed unlawful and result in the Blacks being, quote, whipped and whites involved being fined or jailed. So I think that specificity that white people who are involved in this instruction could also be harmed financially or even physically was really interesting because many times white people were kind of seen as separate from these slave laws and Black people were primarily punished. But I thought that kind of specificity shows how intense these laws could have been. And when we're, when we're thinking about the time period of, of these laws, is this something that extends sort of on both sides of the independence of the United States? When does this start to come into effect? And, and do you see a kind of change in this, this system over time? So I think a lot of these slave laws, like many slave codes in the South, a lot of them are retroactive in the sense that they're trying to stop a behavior that's already happening. So for example, in terms of the Stoner Rebellion, Nat Turner's Rebellion, things like that, you see a lot of these slave laws proliferate after these events or almost right before them. So essentially, there's word mouth movements and things like that. In Connecticut, actually, specifically, it's interesting. In around the 1830s, there's articles about Nat Turner's Rebellion and how New Haven has to react to those types of things. So I think a lot of the times it seems to be in and around those rebellions. And as a result, they crack down on the spread of information within enslaved communities. So yeah, I think that's one of the really, really important findings that you have throughout this thesis, right? That the connection, the, the explicit and very clear and deliberate connection between this fear of insurrection, fear of, of resistance from enslaved people, and this question of literacy and education, that these are deeply intertwined and that there's a real consciousness and awareness of this connection really all across the United States. You also... In the paper, you give a significant amount of attention and, and time to addressing the works of a number of, of white planter elites, including Thomas Jefferson, uh, in the early part of the paper. And, and you're focusing on how they sought and tried to build justifications for the slave system and for denying literacy to enslaved people. So how did literacy, how did ideas of science, how did even appeals to the Greco-Roman past play into these justifications? And what connection is there between all of these different ideas? Yeah, I think it's a pretty interesting area of the paper, just because I think a lot of the time we forget that there are people behind these laws. We kind of just see this legislation and don't really think about, or at least personally, don't really do the deep work and see the connection. So someone like Thomas Jefferson, who's a prominent scholar and has, at least in my mind, limitless numbers of letters that at least I've read, there are so many more has a really interesting book called Notes on the State of Virginia, where he actually makes a comparison, and I, I say this in quotes, comparison between the black and white races and talks about faculties of memory, reason, etc., and kinds, tries to make a conclusion on, you know, the intellectual capacity of both races. And in this study, and I say again, study in quotation marks, he talks about how the slaves in the ancient world, even though they were enslaved, were able to contribute to the intellectual and cultural lives of that world because of their whiteness and how he creates this argument that since, you know, enslaved people in the United States are inferior in cultural and intellectual ways and are not able to contribute, this is not because they are enslaved, but because they are of another and inferior race, that being the black race. So I think it's interesting because they kind of disseminate these myths of white supremacy 
inside of these books of knowledge that they are disseminating throughout the country. But I think Jefferson in particular is someone that deserves a lot of attention in this way because his writing is always, at least in this book, seen as factual, not in a historical perspective, but that's how he himself is writing. Like, I am doing this deep ethnographic work and, and these are the conclusions and take them as you must or as you will. So I think personally looking at Jefferson was really interesting in this paper because he is also um, brought up by Black intellectuals later on and challenged directly. Essentially, they're saying, you know, you wrote this book, answer for your crimes, this is untrue and redact this. So I think Jefferson in particular, having been a president, having been at this point, you know, a very big figurehead in Virginia, writing this type of work, and then using these types of arguments in the Greco-Roman past, I thought was really perfect for the paper, obviously. But one of the reasons I actually started writing the paper was I had to read Notes on the State of Virginia for a different class. And I was like, this is absolutely insane that he's trying to justify the enslavement of Black people by using kind of the Greco-Roman world as a shield or a foil in this instance. Yeah, I think that's a really important insight into how, first of all, how you did the research and how you came to the project, but also the ways in which the ancient past, especially the Greco-Roman past, was used not in an attempt to uncover the reality of its institutions, but in a very particular political, social, cultural context. With that said, I mean, you do a lot of work actually then comparing these two systems. And so what have you found about slavery in the Greco-Roman past itself? And particularly this question of literacy, how did access to education differ? And what does this reveal about Roman and Greek attitudes towards slavery, education, morality that might be different from the American case? So I think personally, um, growing up in the Northeast and growing up in the United States education system, it's not hard to think that we only really learned about United States slavery in depth. So I was actually taking a course with Andrew Johnston here at Yale that was Roman Republic. And then the second part of that course is Roman Empire. And we learned a lot about the slave system in that two semester kind of survey course. And I remember specifically you spoke about how the Romans used enslaved people as teachers. And I remember being in class and thinking, how is that possible? Slavery and anti-literacy laws are linked. And that was kind of, again, one of the instances where I was like, wow, is this American slave system very separate from other forms of slavery. Let me look into this. Let me do my own research. So I think that was kind of the jumping off point. But doing my own research, that was the case. A lot of times in the um, late Republican and early imperial periods of Rome, enslaved people played not only a role, but an essential role in the education system. They were largely responsible for instructing children, and some were even visible in higher levels of academia. However, they weren't always allowed the opportunity to obtain full literary education, what we would think of as the philosophy um, that we associate with that period. But most of the time, enslaved children often learn basic literacy, along with other vocational training. One interesting thing I found was a lot of wealthier children had slave people um, with them at school. So a lot of former slaves in anecdotes or in personal writings learned to read in those moments. So accompanying these children to school, they would just sit by them and kind of take in that knowledge. In other ways, having an educated slave in the Roman world was an economic benefit because you could sell them for more and they would have more of a purpose for you in the household. Essentially, a lot of um, enslaved people were helpful in kind of the economic world in the sense that they could be scribes, they could help put together transactions. So having an educated slave wasn't seen as a danger as it is in the American South. So I thought that was really interesting. A telling example, I think, in terms of how slavery and education are linked in the Roman world uh, is kind of emblematic in one of Seneca the Younger's pieces. 
Essentially, he talks about how only the body is at the mercy and disposition of a master. The mind, however, is its own master. So I think it's interesting because this is separating the mind and the body and the, and the view of enslavement. Whereas I think in the United States, that's just simply not the case. So I think there are plenty of examples in the ancient world where enslaved people gained prominence rather quickly after enslavement, just because that was seen as a physical constraint, not a mental constraint. So when you were freed from slavery, you were at a level where you could integrate quickly into society, whether that be educationally, you know, economically or socially otherwise. So I think that was pretty interesting um, to see, particularly coming from a background of really only learning about American slavery for most of my education, and then seeing how different um, slavery was in different areas and in different time periods. I thought that was a really excellent piece of comparative work that you did in the paper. And, you know, it raised all these questions. You talk about people being freed from slavery and being able to advance in society and, and gain status. And it, it shows a really different attitude toward manumission, uh, which was much more heavily restricted, as you discuss in the paper in, in the United States. And of course, this is not just the example of the Greco-Roman world, right? I'm a historian of the Middle East. And you have this whole tradition of military slavery, of prominent administrators being technically slaves of the Sultan or the Shah. There are many different systems at work here. And I think this comparison is, is really helpful. I wanted to then pivot back to the American case a little bit, because we talked about some of the justifications that are put forward and by people like Jefferson for the slave system, for restricting literacy in particular. And I wanted to then to turn that now and to ask about the work of Black intellectuals and abolitionists in the essay. What kind of contemporary challenges were there to these justifications for slavery and to anti-literacy laws? And where do we see them in, in the writings of prominent Black intellectuals of, of the 19th century? Yeah, so I think one element of the paper that I wanted to be at least its own section, and regrettably wasn't a larger element of the paper in my mind, was looking at areas of resistance and Black resistance. At first, I was thinking, you know, maybe I'll do a broad comparison between specific figureheads in the different slave systems. That could have been Jefferson versus Cato and their different ideas of slavery and things like that. But personally, I was like, I really want there to be more voices from enslaved people. That's kind of essentially why I'm writing the paper. So for me, this section was by far the most fruitful element of the senior essay, and I think something I definitely want to do more research on later on. So as you stated, in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds, many Black people saw education as a pathway to freedom, and a select number of employed this education to directly challenge systems of slavery and even call out the hypocrisy of their oppressors, in this case, Jefferson. So for instance, in 1829, David Walker, who, as you stated, was a Black abolitionist, rebuked the distortion of history presented in Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia. So Walker argued that once a slave was freed in Rome, as we stated earlier, that there was no legislation hindering these people from rising to prominence. While in the United States, there were numerous laws instituted to prevent formerly enslaved people from fully integrating into society, let alone <laughs> gaining any form of public office. So I think it's interesting because he essentially says to Jefferson, how can you make this comparison that race is at play here when there are legal restraints to people even eventually sitting at the same counter? How can we argue that there are not institutional differences between these two slave systems? Many other Black intellectuals, such as Benjamin Banneker, who argues more from a scientific perspective, how you know these pseudoscience conclusions are inaccurate. And then Frederick Douglass, who we've all learned more about growing up, use the emancipatory language of the founding fathers to fortify their claims, whether it be they say, you know, all men are created equal. They talk about it in a religious context. They kind of use the exact same language as folks like Jefferson to say, this is what you wrote. How can you argue otherwise? 
So I feel like these letters and declarations kind of reveal the resistance of the enslaved community, but also recognize at the same time that there are people working at a very high level, such as Frederick Douglass, Benjamin Banneker, David Walker, Phyllis Wheatley, who's a renowned poet, but also people working at a floor level. There are people who are writing their own passes. That's a form of revolution and resistance in my definition. Whether it be individual, these people are learning to read for the express purpose of freeing themselves whether it be people writing passes for others or communicating about different forms of opportunities. So I think there are plenty of levels of resistance. This paper focuses mainly on that kind of higher level resistance, just because it's more directly related to the works of Jefferson and the Greco-Roman past. But I think something I definitely am interested in potentially doing a more kind of social history of the lower down levels, just because those instances are a lot more acute. It might be John from South Carolina learned to read at age seven, escaped at age 15. There's very explicit ways that people were learning to read, not to kind of become these learned scholars that they might have become in the ancient Roman world, but to free themselves and free their families and and change their lives, which I think for me personally, literacy is at the center of my ability to express myself and live in the United States, you know, as a black woman. So I think having that connection and seeing how literacy has become something that has pushed people forward for centuries was definitely something that was really powerful and really fruitful for me. Yeah, it's a really important part of the work you've done here and of this question of literacy, of access to education. And I think a a really effective challenge and, and flipping of the script on apologists for the slave system that you talked about earlier in the paper. I wanted to then end with sort of taking stock a little bit. So, you know, you've done this very effective comparison between an American system that was based explicitly on racial hierarchy that tried to make the claims of racial difference real by restricting education, by restricting access to literacy, essentially tried to prove the points of the pro-slavery apologia and encode them into law. And that often tried to justify this with reference to a past that was actually quite different, right? Where Roman and Greek writers talked about the moral value and of, of education and offered a more of a path to advancement in society and freedom. And then some of the intellectual responses of black thinkers, black abolitionists, and the ways in which people tried to claim their right to, to literacy. So I wanted then to step back from all of this and ask, you know, what do you think are the the major benefits, the the value of this type of comparative approach? How does thinking about the history of American slavery, its institutional legacies, how do we gain more insight into these questions by looking at them side by side with the Greek and Roman past? I believe contextualizing the American slave system in relation to other slave societies is incredibly important. I think this approach can help us better understand the motivations of these respective slave societies. And in the case of the United States, most comprehensively recognize the impacts of anti-literacy laws across the board. I think personally, understanding that the American slave system is in a lot of ways very different, but also particularly brutal in the sense that it wasn't just about physical dehumanization, but mental dehumanization in a way that at least I don't think was present in some other slave societies, but also understanding the racial component and its long-term effects. Because I think something that we've spoken about during this podcast, but also has come up in the research, is this quicker uh, integration into society and the Roman slave society. Once you're freed, you were able to join the economy, join the cultural landscape, even eventually become high up in government, whereas it has taken centuries for enslaved, formerly enslaved Black people 
to integrate into society and are still struggling with the institutional legacy of this system. There's just so much, so much to be gained, but also plenty of other comparative approaches that we can make as well. So very interested to see kind of where this where this work might go later on. Yeah, this is a, a really important set of questions. And I think something that we would benefit from from further exploring for sure. I want to thank you, Alex, for, for joining me today. And I want to say congratulations on on the thesis, on your graduation, and and to wish you all the best now that you have completed your degree. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited to hear a lot of the other podcasts and continue um, in this work. My thanks again to Alexandra McCraven for joining me on the podcast and for the research and the work she's done over her four years at Yale. She's posed questions that challenge us to think not just about the existence of institutions of slavery, but the ways in which they differed and on what terms. The question of literacy and education is a really important one, suggesting that in the United States, restricting access to literacy and education reified the hierarchy between enslaved and free and attempted to justify the rationalizations for slavery that were put forward by planter elites. In the Greco-Roman world, by contrast, we see a vision of education as a positive moral good, and as one that was accessible even to the enslaved as people who might someday be manumitted and rise within society. This poses important questions for us to consider in the study of these institutions, of the United States, of classical antiquity. So my thanks again to Alex McRaven for sharing these insights from her research. The music from today's episode is the song Over the Water Humans Gather by Dr. Turtle. It carries Creative Commons International license. I want to thank you for listening and hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Yale History Podcast.